Stories connect us. They build empathy and understanding across difference. Stories are the basic building blocks of community. If you are brave enough to share your story and have the empathy to listen. But when was the last time someone really listened to you or you listened to someone else? Each episode, we choose a theme and stories from our archives of thousands of stories collected using the Facing Projects model. Every story you hear was produced by two people who took the time to listen and share and collaborate on a monologue told from one of their lived experiences. People who listened instead of judged. What if we all sought to understand? This is The Facing Project. Sponsored in part by Open Door Health Services, providing expert medical, behavioral health, and dental care to all residents of East Central Indiana, regardless of insurance or income status. In carrying out its mission to improve quality of life, Open Door also offers a variety of social services and assistance programs. New patients always accepted. OpenDoorHS.org. Hey, everybody. I'm Kelsey Timmerman. And I'm J.R. Jameson. We're the founders of The Facing Project. JR, did you know I drive a Pontiac? I do. I've ridden in that blue machine before. They don't even make them anymore. I would just say it isn't lap of luxury by any means. It has heated seats, but they they don't work. Do th- I don't think so. Because no. I feel like anytime I've ridden in your car in the wintertime, it's pretty cold. The has entire a, ride. It has a six CD disc changer in it. Yeah. I can't get the CDs out. Well, anyhow, believe it or not, sometimes that Pontiac breaks down. And one time it broke down and I like limped into the nearest auto shop and they would have to have it overnight. And one of the guys who worked there said that he would take me back to my house. Well, you know that I live out in the boonies and it's like a 20 minute drive. So I was talking with the guy that worked at the auto shop, taking me back to my house. And he said that he had to get out of Muncie, that he didn't, you know, so I asked him why. I was like, well, why do you want to leave? He said, all the meth. Mm. And so I'm hearing that. And to me, I've lived in Muncie now for a decade. I've not, my only meth experience is watching Breaking Bad. You know, I've had that level of privilege. It's not something that's ever been part of my life. It was really shocking to me how I I realized how ignorant I was about drugs, even in my hometown. What, how did you react? I didn't really know what to say. You know, I didn't want to say, oh, yeah. I don't want to pretend like I had the same experience, but I also didn't want to, you know, like, oh, I'm out of here too. Like, I, I didn't really know what to say in that moment. I just felt like the the world that I lived in and the world that he lived in, even though we're in the same hometown, were vastly different. Yeah. Two different worlds apart. I felt ignorant. Yeah. Well, actually, according to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Organization, about one in four adults aged 18 to 25 in the United States are currently illicit drug users. On average, that's 130 Americans who die each day from an opioid overdose. Today's theme is the depths of addiction, and we have two stories from individuals facing addiction in two very different ways. The first story you are about to hear has strong language that we have beeped. Listener discretion is advised. Artificial happiness. Devin Thorpe's story is told to Samantha Matlin from Facing Addiction in East Central Indiana, performed by Carl Frost. I believe in artificial happiness. That is the only thing I have known. You don't understand or know how it is to have nothing. There isn't a lot of real happiness because of my childhood. I was with my mom till I was seven, and then I was in a custody battle. My dad all of a sudden wanted me. From age three to seven, it was constant back and forth. 
I ended up with my dad who abused me. I just let it happen. This is when I started drinking. I was 12. My dad was dependent on alcohol, and it's all I saw. I ran away. My life had nothing left of it. This is when I started smoking. When I smoked, I began to mix other drugs or alcohol with it, because why not? I liked the way it felt when I was using. It made me forget. Drinking and smoking made me happy. And that's better than feeling empty and hopeless. So I ran away and moved around from house to house. I never really had a place to call home. No one really wanted me. This was before the summer of 2015. I was 16. This was the summer where I said, F*** life. I drank myself to the hospital. And I knew it was time to change. That summer I met some hippies. And this was the big kickoff for drug use. Man, these hippies were cool. I felt like I found people who had the same mind as me. We drove to Eagle Creek, a local park in Indy, and the view was beautiful. Dude, the water was so blue. The next morning, I started tripping, and everything just got better. It's a feeling you can never replace. You just forget about all the cares in the world. I stayed with them for a week, and then I wanted to go find my mom. I don't know why. I just wanted to see her. I found her and stayed with her for a little while. I went to school for a few months, but then I got expelled. This is when I met my girlfriend at the time, Megan. Man, do I love her. I would do anything for her. She knew about my past and tried to change me. It didn't work. Because now I'm in this youth detention facility. The reason I'm here is because I hit my mom. I don't know why I did it. It was just a reflex. She called the cops on me. We had this rule where we don't call the cops on each other. She broke that. It came to the end of the summer of 2016, and now I'm here, I'm 17 years old, and in a facility with other boys my age. I got here because what else do I have to live for? I don't have a lot to lose either. Life just happens. But I'm done with this shit. It sucks in here, and I'm ready to go. It took me to come here to realize I can't do everything I've been doing. I mean, I'm not saying I'll stop, but I'll calm down. I haven't had any visitors during my time here, but I'm almost done here, so who cares? I don't value myself. I don't care about me. I care about others sometimes. It's just hard letting people in. Because once you let them in, it's hard to let them go. It's hard not seeing Megan. It might be the hardest thing about this. I regret not seeing her before I got in here. That's my only regret. Well, I guess I also regret how f***ed up my brother is. It could be a little bit because of me. He always saw me drinking and angry when I was around him. One time, I punched him so hard he threw up. He's seen a lot more than he should at his age. He's 11. He'll end up like me or worse. He doesn't have any feelings. He cares less than I do. But I do hate being in here. I wish I could change some of it. I don't like my life with drugs, but I like the stories. My life doesn't suck. There's just nothing in my life to care for. If I could be one thing in the world, it would be a chemist. I know I can be that. And one day I will be that. It's just not in the near future for me. But the only thing I can do now is wait. 
there's not a lot in my life right now, you know? People look at me and are like, you don't know what you're doing with your life. You have no plan. It forced me to have a plan. I don't care what plan it is. I really don't. But it makes me want one. I could get shot in the head tomorrow and not care. I know no one out there cares about me, so why should I? I would love to have real happiness in my life than this artificial happiness I got. But artificial is all I have to compare to. Artificial is my view of happiness and how I want to see myself. Drugs are artificial to a point. You create the happiness. You want to escape from it all. Addiction is a lifestyle, and it can happen to anybody. You don't think it can happen to you, but it can. Your life begins to center around it because it's something you grow to need. It's just the moments of weakness or the environment you put yourself in. When you're around something all the time, it's easy to become addicted. I don't want to be a user my whole life, but it's been a part of my life. It'll always be something that's inside of me. I'm trying to lean off drugs, but I don't think I'll ever become clean. It's part of who I am, but I don't want it to be all of me. Drinking and smoking makes me happy. It's not the best thing in the world, but that's better than feeling empty. And that's why I say my stories happily. That's why I laugh when I talk about my life. I say it like that because being f***ed up or drunk or high or being whatever, no matter how much it f***s with the people around you or f***s with yourself, it's better than dealing with your own s***. It's way f***ing better. It's better than feeling a bunch of stuff you don't want to feel about yourself. That's the honest answer. We expect stories to have hopeful and happy endings, but the truth is that they don't. That's life. You know, this story hit me hard because I have a brother who has battled addiction since he was 15, and I haven't even seen him in 10 years. Do you know where he's at? I know that he's in Florida. He's kind of moved all around. I mean, honestly, uh, he went in the Navy after high school and was doing pretty well through that, but then got back into uh, drugs. And he's really kind of lived this vagabonding life where he's lived from couch to couch, had odd jobs. And, you know, we went months at a time where we just wouldn't really know where he was. And then he would call uh, and, and we would we'd find out. So did he call you or did he call your parents? He told my parents. So there's a 14 and a half year age gap between the two of us. So he always grew up as like my older brother who I didn't have much of a connection with anyway, but I felt like we missed out on some of those like older brother, younger brother connections because by the time I really could walk and talk and try to understand even just a little bit about life, he was already deep in his addiction. But at 15, what was he addicted to? Do you know kind of what? He started out drinking, uh... And with friends, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, like he was sneaking out, uh, just running the streets and and just starting to get into trouble and, and doing things that teenagers who want to be a little rebellious start to do. And really, alcohol was his drug of choice, even all the way through the Navy. And uh, then he got into cocaine. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you, you know, he still struggles with with that or do you i mean you haven't talked to him in 10 years yeah um he calls my dad still on occasion so i mean my dad will give updates and my dad will tell me like oh you know he told me that he's gotten clean but 
a lot of us in our family like still find that very hard to believe because then my dad won't hear from him for months at a time. And as far as we know, he hasn't really sought help. And uh, it's really sad to admit that, but we're just, I'm not sure if he actually is clean. Mm-hmm. So when was the last time that you actually, it sounds like your parents have been like kind of the conduit where you hear the news. When's the time like you actually like last spoke to or saw your brother? It was about 10 years ago. And he had made his way back to Indiana, uh, not for long. And he wasn't at my parents' house. Uh, my sister had a gathering at, at her house. And I actually was surprised when I showed up that he was there. And it was almost one of those like awkward things where it's like, oh, you know, like, I'm not even sure what to say to him or how to talk to him. Because before that point, it had maybe been two or three years that I, I hadn't seen him. And we just had very few words exchanged. And um, I never saw him again after that. Mm. Have you ever tried to help him in any way or thought about it? Uh, I, I've not. You know, like, I often feel like a hypocrite because we spend so much of our time collecting stories to try to help other people and that's the one pain point for me where anytime we collect stories on addiction, it reminds me that I've not done anything to really help my brother. And I think it's because I don't know how. And um, in some ways, like I've kind of given up on him. And I know others in my family, they have as well, which is really sad to admit. But But there has come a point where you just have to say like, is this something that I too fight with and struggle with or do I try to move on? And that's a hard, it's a thin line, right? To have to make that decision. And I think because my brother and I were never super close and he hasn't really made an effort to reach out to me either. Uh, it's very easy for me to just navigate through life as if he doesn't even exist. And it's really hard for me to say that and admit that, but that's just the reality that I live with so if he was to listen to the show and you know what would you want to say to him what would you want him to hear uh oh boy i don't know i uh i think i would want him to know how much he has hurt my dad hmm. um and how much it breaks my dad's heart when he talks about him. I think if he could see that and truly understand it, I don't know, maybe it would make him change. And my dad, I think, has that hope, I guess, because there's so much distance in our age and time and experience. I just, I don't have that faith that it will change or happen. So when you hear stories like Devin's, when people hear stories about yours and your brother's and your father, what do you hope that they can learn from it? I hope at minimum that stories like Devin's or even the story I just shared about my own experience can help others better understand what it's like to be in the throes of addiction. 
Breaking Cycles, an anonymous story is told to Kara W. and Jessica T. from behind the faces of criminal justice in Chippewa Valley, Wisconsin, a facing project, performed by Laura Williamson. My parents were teenagers when they had me. My grandfather wouldn't let my mom use public assistance, so she worked all the time. He thought since we had clothing, food, and a roof over our heads, we were good. But with my mom not around, there was a lack of nurturing in my childhood. My dad was an alcoholic. He regularly hosted keg parties. I spent a good part of my early years exposed to alcohol use when I was at his house. Once I became a teen, it felt natural for me to join the party. I didn't want to become my dad, so I smoked weed instead of drinking. And by late high school, I started selling marijuana. My weed supplier also had meth, cocaine, and heroin. I tried meth after I had my first son one year out of high school. I didn't realize it was meth at the time. My supplier told me it was called glass. When I took it, everything became clearer. I started making lists and thought my whole life would be fixed. Then the sun came up and it was a whole other story. I knew it would be a problem for me. I told the supplier to keep it away. After I finished my accounting degree, I was reintroduced to meth. I used because of body insecurities, and it made me lose weight. But once I found out I was pregnant again, I quit. Later, my husband and I moved to New Richmond. That city has the same meth problems Eau Claire has now. I was looking for marijuana, but all I could find was meth, so I started using again. This is where I really entered a cycle of drug abuse. I would lose my job and house, quit using, get everything back, and then to celebrate, I would use. Soon I was back to selling drugs to pay bills and eventually become addicted once again. This cycle repeated five or six times. The only thing I felt good at was using and selling drugs, and it felt natural to go back to them. Along the way, my marriage ended and I was arrested twice on drug charges. The first time was in St. Paul. The second happened in Eau Claire, and I went through the AIM treatment court. It's a program for women to establish a crime-free lifestyle. I did well, but at that time, the program only focused on addiction. It never dug into the relationship and money problems that led me to using drugs. So after being sober for three years, I went back to meth. Eighteen months later, I found myself in jail again. By then, I had six felony drug charges. Sitting in jail, I knew prison was a real possibility. I was faced with having to change my entire life or return to the only behavior I'd ever known. I decided to turn my life around no matter what happened. My boys deserved a better life than that. If I went to prison, I wanted them to see me healthy before I went. I applied for AIM court again, but the county put me on a cash bond. My family wouldn't pay it. Another option was to accept a plea bargain and plead guilty, and they would let me out of jail. The plea capped the prison time at three years and ordered a pre-sentence investigation, which took three months. I was free during that time, so I asked for a daily urinary analysis in order to keep me away from meth, but they didn't listen. There was nothing set in place before I was released. I was in limbo and felt set up to fail. Luckily, I remembered the AIM court coordinator and went straight to her office crying from stress. Not having any conditions on my bond scared me. We fought to reopen my case to include the drug tests. 
During the three months before my sentencing, I acted as if I was already in AIM court. I attended weekly meetings and whatever programs I could get into. I was able to stay at a refuge house, and I was accepted into a program that provided housing to chronically homeless people. I paid 30% of my income for rent, and they covered whatever I couldn't. Because I was proactive, everything fell into place. By the time I went to court for sentencing, I had a full-time job and a place to live. The ruling was for me to attend AIM Court and not go back to jail. AIM Court had added programs like dialectical behavior therapy, a course on relationships, and a program addressing childhood trauma. I completed these groups and began to develop a support network outside of family and my old using friends. I did well and graduated. After everything, I could have completely left this part of my life behind, but I feel like it's my calling to share these experiences with people so that change can happen for others like me. I'm now a full-time student at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and I plan to work on criminal justice reform so the system can better keep ex-incarcerates from returning to their previous habits. I also want to help the general public understand addiction and their potential role to help those coming out of jail from re-entering. I believe when everyone starts to see each other with dignity and respect, positive change can happen. This story is an example of a person that found that a reason and the resources to actually climb out of the depths of addiction. Yeah. What I appreciate about her story, it's so real about the starts and the stops that come along with addiction. You get this start of, I'm going to change my life and I'm going to move away from addiction. But then something triggers the use again. And you're back right where you you were. And she had so many of these starts and stops throughout her life. And it really was that that moment of facing prison time and realizing she may not see her kids again, that she she went back to the counselor who had once helped her to say, I I need I need help. I mean, I think it's the best that we can hope for for Devin. Yeah. It's the best we could hope for uh those who are near and dear to us. And I I think I speak for the listeners. I really appreciate you sharing your story. Um, yeah. Well, I feel like it's <laughs> the thing I could do when uh, I'm not sure what else to do. And, you know, that's what we're about. And so I should just be honest about my story around that as well. Well, thank you. So if you are facing addiction and looking for a way out, the National Drug Helpline offers 24-7 drug and alcohol help to those struggling with addiction. Call the National Hotline for Drug Abuse today to receive information regarding treatment and recovery at 1-888-633-3239 or visit drughelpline.org. We've now made it easier than ever to participate in The Facing Project. Visit us online at facingproject.com to learn how to submit a story that will become a part of our national archive and could be featured on this radio program. This is where you can also find other Facing Project stories and how to start a full-fledged Facing Project in your community. And to continue the conversation about this episode, Find us on Facebook at The Facing Project. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. 
The Facing Project show is produced by Sean Ashcraft from Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. Until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Mm-hmm.